0: And tonight, our topic is the Ten Commandments of Management. I'm obviously playing off uh, the Ten Commandments given to us in Exodus chapter 20. But I want to give you a little context. There's a lot that happened in Scripture prior to Exodus 20, the whole book of Genesis and the first 19 chapters of Exodus, to be specific. And I want to just give you um, some sense of the context in which these commandments are given and why they're relevant. This is important today because we have many in the body of Christ who do not uh, think that the Old Testament is relevant. Uh, Furthermore, they would say things like, you know, the law, we don't have to obey the law. Um, But you have to keep in mind the law uh, was served a purpose, served multiple purposes. One purpose was to reveal sin, but the other purpose was to reveal righteousness. And so the law has great value in helping us understand more about who God is and what he's, you know, calling us to do in terms of our lifestyle, as well as what he calls us to do in our assignments here on earth. So the, the Bible begins with a creation mandate. It's a foundational mandate for mankind. It is the true Great Commission. It's the reason we're here. We're here to be God's ruling agents on earth. He made us in his image. We are the only animate objects in the universe that can do what we do. And we're able to to organize and manage God's creation because he has put enough of himself in us to be able to do it. No other animate object, object uh, could do that. So that's one of the clarities that we need to get to is that that's why we're here. Sometimes I think people are very confused about why we're here. They act like, you know, we're here just to get everybody saved and, That's really not a good way to think about it. That's not biblically sound. So we've got to to begin at the beginning, and we begin with the creation mandate, the creation order. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the creation order. tells us a lot about what God's intent and purpose is, including things like marriage. These things are defined and illustrated there for us. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man, where Adam and Eve served as a proxy For humanity, and they disobeyed the one command they had, and the consequence of that was death. Death manifests in three ways spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. Spiritual death happened immediately to Adam and Eve. Physical death was deferred, and eternal death was deferred. But there will be an end of that. In fact, Adam and Eve have already died physically, so that deferment has ended for them. And eternal death has not come because the final judgment has not come yet. So we live in a time between the fall and the final judgment. So during this time, we are the heirs of Adam and Eve. We are born with their fallen nature. And so we come into the world with a bias to sin. We do not come in morally neutral. We don't come in with the ability to make choices any way we please we come in with a bias to sin. It's very easy to see that. If you've had children, you know you didn't have to train them to sin. Sin comes very easy for them. You have to train them to do things that are right. And inherently, they know some things that are right because we have some common grace to know some of God's basic principles like you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't kill people. We know those things, but we don't have enough ability in and of ourselves to meet God's righteous standards. So God has started a, according to his first proclamation of the good news, he started a metanarrative of redemption. See, the pro of Genesis 3.15 is the first proclamation of the good news. The good news that God is going to defeat death. When Adam and Eve sinned, the consequence was death. In all of its expressions. And what the Prote Evangelion promised was that the that God would engage in a meta-narrative of his choosing, and it would look the way he wants it to look, and it would be the way he wants it to be, and he, and he would defeat death, and he will save a people for himself. And that's one of the things we've got to get very comfortable with because God is the one that decided to choose Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God, God chose him. And he only chose Abraham, he didn't choose anybody else. I don't know how many people are alive when Abraham lived, but God chose him to be the agent through which he would exercise his metanarrative of redemption. Now, before the promise that was given to Abraham, there were a couple of things that happened that confirmed the fallen condition of mankind. One was the flood. The flood that uh, came about 1,500 years after creation, something like that. It revealed to us that mankind, left to himself, with only oral tradition, no written revelation, and no divine empowerment, would default to sin. Now, that's no surprise to God. He fully understands that. But he reveals it to us so that we can understand it. And then once the flood, we have a reboot, a divine reboot with eight supposedly righteous people. Of course, they're not perfectly righteous. They were just the ones that were deemed to be the most righteous at the time. Again, now this is God's sovereign choice. We don't know who all was alive and how they lived, but he chose these people. Noah and his sons and their or their wives were chosen to be saved. And from them has come down the human race again. And we find the same thing. We wind up, you know, some seven, eight, or 900 years later with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel reveals that mankind is all about mankind. Mankind's looking for self-glory. Mankind's not looking to obey God. He's not looking to walk with God. He's looking to play God. So he wanted to build a tower, a city and a tower that reached to the heavens as if he could bridge the gap between humanity and God in and of himself and in the process glorify himself. And of course that got judged. So again, that's God is revealing to us in scripture what's really going on. When Abraham was chosen, then he was given a promise. And the promise was simple, but Abraham couldn't believe God. He couldn't see how God could fulfill the promise through him, through his heir, because he was too old and his wife was too old about bare bear children. They could not believe that God could handle that. So they decided to take matters in their own hands. More sin revealed here. Nevertheless, God still prevailed and Isaac is born. And Isaac's descendants, through Jacob, eventually wound up in Egypt. And Egypt is, of course, the home of Ishmael. Ishmael's uh, was uh, Hagar. Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian slave. So you see that it's it's kind of ironic that the battle between Ishmael and Isaac that started with, with Abraham, Ishmael represented the attempt of man to fulfill the promise of God, and Isaac was the fulfillment of the promise of God. But the two men battled all their lives. And even 400 years later, when Isaac's descendants through Jacob wind up in Egypt, it's in some ways a victory for Ishmael. But There would be redemption from that and the children of Israel were redeemed and now one final experiment is going to be given to them to reveal the depth of human depravity they would be given a conditional covenant the conditional covenant was we know to be the old testament law and it was very simple it's given to us in exodus 19 1 through 8 i'm just going to read this short text to you to set this context because this sets up Exodus 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are given. So on the third moon, that is three months, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they had been delivered, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, this is probably the epitome of arrogance and presumption to presume that you could obey the words of the Lord, the law of God, in all of its detail, perfectly. That's what he meant. I don't know how well they understood that, but they certainly didn't know themselves. They didn't realize for a moment that there's no way they could do this. Some people have argued that if God gives you a command, he gives you the ability to do it. This is an example how that's not correct. God can give us a command and we don't have the ability to do it. And the purpose for the command is to reveal to us that we don't have the ability to do it. And that's exactly what the rest of the Old Testament does. It reveals mankind's depth of his depravity. It reveals his inability's impotency to be able to obey the commands of God perfectly, which is what God's standard is. And Galatians 3 Uh, Paul explains all this. It explains the law was intended to reveal sin, and it did. The Israelites sinned mightily. In fact, it wasn't long before they had built their first idol. In fact, Exodus 32 was the the golden calf. Most of you probably know about that. That was the first idol. So very quickly, they disobeyed. They failed very quickly. And the rest of the Old Testament is just more failure one after another until finally, The the period is over and God has concluded this period and sovereignly sends his son now to save mankind, to do what for mankind, what mankind could never do for himself, to be the perfect, you know, obedient one who could obey the law perfectly and that he died as our substitute and God used his death now to be the vicarious atonement for all of us. So that basically the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. The Old Testament confirms that we cannot self-save, we can never redeem ourselves. we don't have the power to choose Christ, we don't have the power to obey Christ, we need a savior, that's what it sets up. But in the midst of this, God gives the 10 Commandments. That's part of the law that they had, which they failed to obey, and the 10 Commandments reveals things about the righteousness of God that are still relevant today, and should be guides to us today. So that's why I'm appealing to this as the Ten Commandments of Management. So let me just walk you through this quickly. And uh, this is Commandments 1 through 4. It says, starts out here, if you see on the left-hand column at the bottom, the first verse says "And God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land house of slavery. And so then he starts listing these commandments. They're in verses 1 through 17 of Exodus chapter 20. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's like, in the beginning, God, any questions? There should be no questions. But yet we keep acting like there are ways around that, that we can come up with exceptions. And we we invent terms like secularism, which is such a ruse. To say that anything could be separated from God is just deception. It's a lie. It's distortion. It's confusion. Everything comes from God. All wisdom, all knowledge, all creation, every molecule, every principle that works in God's universe comes from Him. The only thing that doesn't come from Him is this rebellion and distortion that mankind is engaged in. The second commandment, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, the challenge here for us is that we are very prone to worship creation. And that's what you see happening commonly when people are unclear about the creator and the fact that he is transcendent and he's so beyond his creation. They wind up worshiping the creation. That's exactly what Romans 1 tells us. That mankind has repressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and worship creation instead of the creator. So that is commonly done in almost in every worldview except Christianity In true Christianity. There are professing Christians that do this, that make this mistake. But true Christians that are truly worshiping the creator, they know they're worshiping the creator, not the creation. So that's the second thing. The third law is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's a serious thing. The name of the Lord should be held in high esteem and reverence and should be honored. And we should recognize we are agents who represent him. That means We act on his behalf. We should act in his name, meaning we should act congruent with his character and nature and purpose. So that you can see, that's a very important principle for all of us. And we're going to see in a minute some scripture. I'm going to give you some scripture references in the New Testament that tie back to these that hopefully will guide us in how to think about the Ten Commandments of Management. And the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you'll see there's more verbiage there. And I've, I've just highlighted the, the initial phrase like I did in verse two, two and four. There's a lot more that he says about that. I just it just doesn't fit easily on the slide. So I've had to use a smaller font. But that does not mean it's not important. It just I just needed to do that to put it on the slide. But these are four. The first four commandments are about how we love God. Uh. Today, we seem to commonly sing songs where we boast about how we love God. Um, You know, that's probably pretty arrogant. Uh, Loving God, if you really love him, you will obey him, and you obey everything. And most of us don't have a clue how to do that. Our ability to obey God is limited because we don't know him very well. We don't know his commands well. Uh, I've done some studies over the years trying to find out how many commands are there for Christians that we can find in the Bible. and I I can't find anyone that's got a definitive list. I find people that will acknowledge there are hundreds of them, others say there are thousands of them, and they try to categorize them and organize them in various ways. All we can say is the Bible is full of commands. If you read it correctly and understand what God is saying, you will find commands in just about every book of the Bible. Uh, Sometimes I've taken groups and we've done little studies where we would Take a passage of scripture like Matthew 5 or 6 or 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and I just say, okay, let's take one chapter and let's go find every everything here we think should be a, is a command that Christ has given to us. And typically in one chapter like that, we could easily come up with 30, 40, 50 commands, easy, because there's so much in the word. There's so much truth in the word. If you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and a heart to obey, you'll see the truth. And the truth is is very comprehensive, and there's no one that knows it all. We're all a work in process, and we're all learning as we go along. All right, the next six commandments are about loving mankind, and hopefully you're you're noticing that I'm connecting with uh, Matthew 22, where it talks about what's the greatest command of the law, and what's the and that's all they asked for. But Jesus gave them an answer to that, and he told them what the second was. The first of the commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbors yourself. So, and you know that loving him, it means obeying him. So if you love him, you obey him. And if you love his people, you're obeying him and how you treat other people. So this is really about how to treat people. It's really social norms, how we communicate and work with the other. So very quickly, number five is honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. This is the first commandment with promise, and this speaks of the importance of recognizing the hand of God and sovereignly putting you in a family, putting you under parents, and he did that for his purpose, and so your parents uh, are not your choice, and your parents are God's choice, and they are who you, they need to be to serve his purpose in and through you. The next one is you shall not murder. That's six. Seven is you should not commit adultery. You see, these things are sin. Today, adultery is just just a choice. It's no longer considered a sin. Or you should not steal. Rapidly today, stealing is becoming okay. And number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which means you should tell the truth. Well, people are increasingly viewing truth as just an option. It's a tool to accomplish your agenda. You use it if you need to use it. If you need to lie, you lie. And you can see we're disconnecting from these principles, these, you know, how God laid out things to be. We're no longer honoring that. And finally, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox, his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, coveting is about never being content. You're never satisfied. You never have enough. And that is very much part of our culture today. So here are these 10 commandments. So now how do we connect these to management, to leading organizations, to running businesses, to running Christian communities, to running nonprofits or NGOs or whatever we're part of? How do we connect them? Well, I'm gonna offer you some thoughts. These are not exclusive thoughts. These are just ideas to consider, if, if I were to give you a blank template, you, you could probably come up with your own applications, but I'm just going to give you these for your consideration. Uh, I list here on this particular slide, first at the top, the, uh, the Matthew 22, 36 through 40, where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, And this is the great and first commandment. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, or hang all the law and the prophets, meaning everything flows out of them. And that's that second commandment is Leviticus 19, 18. So I've divided the Ten Commandments into two categories. The first four commandments deal with loving God. And the second or the next six are loving others so let's just do go down the order you shall have no other gods that's the first one and a proposed way to think about that in terms of management is the responsibility of management is alignment with God alignment with God there's a strategic alignment with God that happens on the meta-narrative level that for most of us we can't even begin to touch it. It's so big. It's so beyond us, we can't see to do it. But that should be what we're working on is for the grace to see how we fit into the bigger picture of what God is doing long term. And that's our responsibility. Now, the verse I've got here out of James 4, I would argue, is probably more of a tactical. It's more tactical in the sense that it's more immediate. It's more clear. It's easier for us to do to recognize what our role is. If you happen to be in the restaurant business, you pretty well know you're in the food distribution business and you can come up with a tactical plan for how to do that. The challenge of seeing how you fit into the greater picture is more difficult. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute. I'm gonna talk about Chick-fil-A at the end and some of what's happening with them and how that really speaks to us today of the challenges that we're gonna be facing, I think, in the time ahead. The second command, you shall not worship idols. This has to do with do not worship fame, fortune, influence, and power, which are the common definitions of success in the world. And Luke chapter 16, verse 13 tells us you can't do that. You can try to do that. You do that. You're just going to be deranged because you either worship God or you worship something else. You can't do both. You hear people talking about, I want to be wealthy so I can support kingdom causes. What you're hearing there is an idolatry. They're not worshiping God. You cannot do it. In fact, what Luke 16 tells us, it's impossible to worship God in money. That's an example of how you can't worship anything other but the God. And worship is in spirit and truth. So it starts in your heart, your heart right with God, and then it's expressed in total commitment to serving him. Only thing you're concerned with is his will, his ways, his timing, his glory. So that's true worship. That is true management in action. All right, the nerd one here, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Do everything in the name of Christ. Colossians 3:17 is one of my favorite texts. I have a stamp that I've given to my clients. I'll show it to you. I can't show you much about it. I'll just show it. Here it is, right here. But on this, on this uh Stamp. It quotes um, Colossians three seventeen, and it says, "This work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus." Now that's a paraphrase of Colossians three seventeen. I have some clients. that get, we'll get a rubber, we'll get the, an ink pad. They'll stamp it, and they'll stamp documents with this, like an invoice. So, if that's what you want to do, that's great. If you want one of these, let me know. I have some. I can send you one. But I think this is a great reminder. I keep it on my desk to look at it, to remind me that every day, every conversation, everything I write, you know every piece of advice I give, it needs to reflect Christ. Do everything in the name of Christ. I need to try to discern what He wants, His will, his ways, his time and his glory. So that's my agenda. That's the only way that I can properly stay aligned with this commandment, to to not misuse the name of the Lord. I'm standing for Christ, I need to do everything to reflect that I'm standing for Christ. That's a really high bar. But that's true of all of us. Whatever you do, there are probably people out there that recognize or assume that you're a Christian and they will associate what you do with Christ. So you need to be very vigilant about recognizing that reality, whether you ever say anything to them about being a Christian or not they'll size you up and they'll probably make that assumption. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath day. This is one of the hard ones. And of all these commandments, this is probably one of the hardest for me because I, I tend to misuse rest day. I tend not to do it well. And if I abuse it myself, I probably don't help others do it. So Colossians 4.1 says this about management. You shall not abuse or misuse your workers. Now, that Colossians 4 1 is explicitly talking to managers, and it's telling them you need to take good care of them. That means you don't have the right to use them incompatible with the design of God, and you don't have the right to keep them from being able to do the things they need to do to stay healthy, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually healthy. Today, I see a lot of people who are spiritually malnourished. If you're not feeding on the word, really learning the word well, learning to walk by the word well, being discipled in that, if that's not happening in your life, you're probably very spiritually malnourished. So you need to to get that in order and your manager needs to help you do that. Whatever it is you need to do, you know, he needs to be there to help you accomplish that. The next one, honor your father and your mother. Now your father and mother are your first authority figures. When you came on this planet, you immediately were under authority. You didn't get to pick them. You have no choice. They're your authority. Whether they're good or bad, that's not your concern. Your concern is to be submitted. So you need to honor your boss, whether he's good or bad, whether he's right or wrong, whether he's righteous or not righteous, you need to submit. And usually people just gag here, they panic because they think, well, what if I, what if they abuse me? What if they what if they mistreat me? What if they you know just use me for their agenda well they can do that yes that can happen but you have to know God is sovereign and he has a plan and he has a purpose he has a way for you to deal with that there are limits on submission that are given to us for example in Acts chapter 5 you can find some limits there and so you need to learn how to deal with authority including dysfunctional authority that's part of the challenge just grow up and mature in your ability to properly submit to authority in every situation. The next one do not murder. Uh, a way to think about murdering people is anytime that my interest trumps God's interest. My interest trumps God's interest. I will use people, I will abuse people, and it'll all be about me and what I want and, and how much, how to glorify myself in some way. So that's murder. Next one do not commit adultery. Adultery is about breaking trust so when you commit adultery you've broken a covenant promise to a spouse likewise when you are you go to work for someone you have you're in a relationship with them where they are the boss and you are the subordinate you should be trustworthy under them you should not break their trust so that's what Titus 2 9 and 10 tells us furthermore Titus 2 9 and 10 addresses the next one do not steal we're to subordinate our personal agendas to the good of the whole. When we go into any kind of uh, organizational setting, it doesn't matter what it is, we're in a group setting, we should always seek the greater good of the group first, not ourselves. If you lived in you know, in Christian circles that were reasonably healthy a thousand years ago, you would have said, that's a no brainer, yeah, that's how we live. But since um, nominalism has risen up in the 14th century, about 700 years ago, the, the individual has been exalted over the community. And so now people don't think in terms of what's best for the community, they think in terms of what's best for me, what's in it for me, that's the kind of thing you hear. So we don't, we, we wind up breaking this commandment, at least, at least my, my proposed application of the commandment, because we seek our personal agendas ahead of the good of the whole. The next one, do not lie, speak the truth, seek the truth and act based on truth. Colossians 3.16 16 makes it clear. We are to be people of truth. We are to convey truth. We're to be committed to truth. And we're to use music to convey truth and correct error. Truth is what it's all about. And truth is both a person and propositions. And we need to get clear on both and walk in truth. And finally, do not covet. First uh, Timothy 6, 6 through 12 is a good one. Philippians 4 is another good one. Be content. Learn to be content no matter what's going on. Know that whatever's happening needs to happen to get you ready to do what God wants to do in and through you. Whatever you've got going on in your life, it doesn't matter what it is, how hard it is, how painful it is, how how inferior it may seem, it's what needs to be the chisel on you to get you ready for what God wants you to do. So this is a way, these are ways to think about how to apply these principles that you see in Exodus 20 into how we live as leaders and managers. Now in in the video that hopefully you watched, I I went through the examples of these people, Marion Wade, Congo Gumi, Mayo Brothers, R.C. Wiley, Chick-fil-A. These are examples of people that walked out these principles. Also gave you example of SAS, um, Ross Perot, Herb Kelleher, my own father, and Lewis Schaefer. All of these men and women have done incredible things before the Lord, whether they knew it or not. I don't think Herb Keller Her, ever really knew what he was doing. But if you start looking at what he did, he, there's you can tell his mother was a huge influence on his life and he taught him the golden rule and he was very faithful to follow it and that produced an incredible experience in the first 30 years of Southwest Airlines' you know, existence. Since he's gone on, there's been a little afterglow of his influence, but now the new generation has lost touch with his heart. And now they're going astray. This is why Southwest Airlines is declining. It's no longer what it used to be. It's no longer the premier airline. It's now becoming a very so-so airline like every other airline that's run by pagans. So this is a great picture if you can see it. What I want to focus on in the time we have left here is um, I want to apply this. I want to pull this into the current day. This is a, this is exceedingly difficult because we live in a time where it's it's hard for us to recognize what's really going on. I had a conversation with my fourteen year old grandson on Saturday on Sunday, and I was trying to explain to him about how we're praying to help do things to prepare him and put things in place for him for whatever battles God has assigned him to. Now, he just thinks that's just craziness, that this grandfather's just crazy, doesn't understand. And I said, you don't really get it. And I explained to him, this is what it was like when I was about your age. Uh, I was his age in 1961. That was when I was 14. This is the way it was back then. This, These things were wrong. Divorce was wrong. There was no no-fault divorce. Adultery was wrong. Fornication was wrong. Sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage were wrong, period. No exceptions. Homosexuality was wrong. Abortion was wrong. Theft was wrong. You didn't defy the police. You supported the police. Greed was wrong and deception and lies, that was wrong, you didn't lie, you told the truth. Telling the truth is more important than anything else. My dad was sacrificed money for truth. Today, we sacrifice truth for money. We've got it all backwards. So I was trying to explain that to him. I said, you look at today, here we are, 2023, Uh, these things are right now, divorce is right. Adultery is okay, it's an option. Fornication, have sex with whoever you want, you know. Mutual consent is all that's needed. Homosexuality is celebrated. It's not just tolerated, it's celebrated. Abortion, although it's the Roe v. Wade decision has been overturned, a lot of the states are adopting abortion laws. Abortion is still very much legal, it's still much practiced, and it's accepted as okay. It's not expected, not viewed as as murder. It's it's theft. If you're watching the news and you're paying attention to what's going on, particularly in cities that are run by, by liberal Democrats, you see theft's not a problem. You just go steal anything you want. No problem because we defund the police. You know, the thinking here is that, you know, mankind is good, mankind's not fallen. He doesn't need police that are mean-spirited and might do something bad. We just need social workers to help mankind to think better so they can make right choices. So that's what they want to do. Get rid of the police and just hire some social workers and remove all the restraints and let people do whatever they want want to do. And then accordingly, they'll make the right choices. That's the theory. That's Marxism. That is not Christianity. That is very anti-Christ. And then you have greed. Greed is good. Since 1987 with the movie Wall Street, where <clears throat> Gordon Gecko, a fictitious character, announced that greed is good. Greed is right. Greed is what makes everything better. Uh, people have bought that, and they don't have a problem with greed. We work for money now. I remember back, back in the 60s and being around my, my dad's company and knowing a lot of the people that my dad worked with I don't think I ever met one that worked for money. They always worked because they felt called to do it. And they always put their character, their reputation, and doing the right thing ahead of money. Whatever the money they made, they were grateful and thankful and they appreciated it. But doing the right thing was what mattered to them. It no longer matters. If you need to lie, you lie. Whatever you need to do to accomplish what you want to accomplish, you do it. And that's considered okay. And so these things that were sin, were wrong, were considered to be out of bounds just, you know, 60 years ago. Now they're acceptable. Now, what does this say? Isaiah 520 tells us this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, when you turn upside down the rules that God has made for his universe, and we are in his universe, and the only thing that will work in his universe are his principles, when you try to turn that upside down, you're going into judgment. You're walking in judgment. Are you clear? that in God's universe, that you cannot do anything well except using his principles. Even a bank robber has to steal Christian principles to successfully rob a bank. They've got to have leadership. They have to have planning. They've got submission to authority. They have to execute well. All of these things that are, come from Christianity, they steal those to accomplish something illicit. And, of course, God in his grace won't let you get away with that for long. You will get caught. But that illustrates that even when you're doing nefarious things, you're doing wicked things, evil things, you're stealing truth from God to do it. And, of course, they need to humble themselves repent and start doing the things that are right before God, his will, his ways, his timing, his glory. As it is, they're doing their will using his ways. And that will not work. That's what the Tower of Babel participants did. They tried to do their will using God's ways, and you get away with it a while, and then you get judged. That's what happens. So we're in that time again. We're building Towers of Babel today, just like was done, you know, thousands of years ago. The end result will be the same, will be judgment. So let me just illustrate this for you with a a story about Chick-fil-A. Now, in the teaching, I talked about and compliment Tariq Cathy, which I think there are many things that he did really well. Uh, one of the things that he did was he, he honored the Sabbath. He closed on, on Sunday, so his, his employees could have time with their families and time to participate in Christian communities. That was important, and he was faithful to do that. He also recognized the importance of marriage. And he knew that if you have a healthy marriage, you will have a good worker. If you have an unhealthy marriage, you will have a a worker that will struggle. And so about 25 years ago, he actually started offering at no charge to his employees and franchisees free marriage retreats. And then he went and built, spent over a million dollars building a retreat center for these marriage retreats. So he bought the property, built the the infrastructure and hired the people to run this so they could do counseling and run, you know, weekend retreats and seminars and things like this to train people in how to have godly marriages. He recognized that was great value to them personally. And as they were blessed personally, they would be more effective as workers. He had a lot of critics that criticized him. Now his... uh, his heirs, which have taken over, he died, I believe in 2015, I believe it was, but his heirs took over before the end of his life. And uh, they, they talked about taking the company public. And this is his son and his grand- grandchildren that were, you know, looking at this. And after they looked at this, they realized that if we go public, the public will never understand our values never understand why we do what we do relative to Christian values. So they made a commitment to not take the company public so they could stay with the values. Now, that's where they they cost themselves a lot of money to stay true to the word of God, to stay true to it. Now, that was a very commendable thing. That was probably 15 years ago that that happened. Then in 2012, something happened about 10 years ago. The LBGT community came at, at Chick-fil-A, some of you may know this story, and um, started criticizing because the way LBGTQ people look at it is if you support Christian marriage, you are anti, you know, gay marriage, which that would be correct. And Dan Cathy came out and said, yes, that's true. We support biblical Christian marriage. And, of course, there was a boycott that – boycott goes on, I think, still today. There are a lot of people that won't go to Chick-fil-A because of that. But the heat is ratcheted up. And most recently, Dan Cathy, who was True Cathy's son, uh, before he transitioned – he transitioned about three years ago and handed off to his son, Andy, who's now the new CEO – But but Dan began to waffle – and he began to concede something to the two agenda, trying to compromise, trying to find middle ground. So when you start trying to compromise with the enemy, you're going to find it's not going to work. So currently Chick-fil-A, though it's still doing well, is being boycotted by the extreme left people. And now that he's beginning to compromise, he's actually established um, an office for... Diversity, Inclusion, and and, and Equity and Inclusion, DEI, as they call it. He's got an officer in charge of that, and they're actually beginning to embrace this, and they're actually beginning to give franchises to the LBGTQ people. Now, Chick-fil-A is harder to get a franchise for than it is for you to get into Harvard. About 3% of the people that apply to Harvard get in. Only one-tenth of 1% of people that apply for Chick-fil-A franchise get one. So it's a really high bar they've traditionally had, but they're beginning to cave and to waffle. Well, the people that, the true Christians, the conservative Christians are looking at this and they're beginning to get very unhappy because now Chick-fil-A is trying to put their foot in both worlds. That probably will not go well. It's hard to say where it's going to go, what's going to happen But they seem to be very content at trying to find some middle ground of satisfying both and they're not satisfying either one. So that is very likely what all of us are going to face on some level and maybe sooner than later. And we've got to be willing to face that. And that's that's hard. You've got to ask yourself, okay, if things get really difficult uh, and I can't hire people based on biblical principles, what am I going to do? What if I'm forced to hire people? The law says I have to hire people. And if I don't hire people according to the law, I've got to deal with that. I may get lawsuits, et cetera. And it forces me to hire people that I do not, I'm not comfortable with. But if you don't don't hire these people, they wind up suing you and claiming that you have discriminated against them. And they will probably win because the court's no longer about justice. The courts are about winning. And so many of the judges, they're biased. They're biased, not, they're not trying to, to weigh things to find justice. They're biased in favor of the liberal agenda. So you're not going to find justice in the courts. So increasingly, there's not a, not a, a court of appeal. And so what are you going to do? How are you going to survive in a culture where the pressure is going to be on you? What happens if you you have a an industry that has to have a license, but to get the license renewed, you have to agree to a statement of faith that you don't agree with. What happens if you want to go to law school, but you can't go to law school unless you agree to an LBGTQ statement of faith? What happens if you want to go to medical school, but you can't go unless you agree to do abortions? You know, are, are you agreeing to do gender transitions or are you, you agree to do anything like euthanasia or infanticide? Any of those kinds of things that you may be against your convictions. What do you do? These are the things that are beginning increasingly be you know in front of people and it's just going to be a matter of time before it's in front of you. You have whatever license you have to have whether it's a driver's license, a sales license, you know, renew your LLC, your corporation, eventually there's going to be some stipulation put on you most likely. And if you can't agree or if you wind up trying to do go do what Truett Cathy does, you'll you'll compromise. But if you you don't compromise, you'll probably be put out of business. And then you've got to say, okay, I've got to trust. If if I can't go forward and be faithful to God in the current context, there'll be another context, some way for you to survive, some way for you to live. And you have to know God is in there. Increasingly, this is going to be a big big challenge. Hopefully, you recognize. This is gonna impact everything. It's gonna impact businesses at all levels, all types. It's gonna impact nonprofits like churches and NGOs. It's gonna impact schools, everything. It's gonna be pressure put on, increasing pressure. You just look at what happened, what's going on in 60, what's going on in 23, You know, just 60 years later, uh, huge changes. What's gonna happen in 83? Some of you will probably be around in 83, and you've got to deal with whatever's there. And it's probably just going to be more and more of the same thing. And what the Holy Spirit appears to be doing is purifying. He's going to to show us who's real and who's not real, because the people who aren't real will cave in. Like Dan Cathy's doing, and please, I'm not being critical to him. He's an example of someone who is compromising. And I think in the end, it's not gonna go well. <clears throat> We've gotta be willing to stand up and say no, and we have to know where to say no, and we're gonna need help. Do have to help each other with these decisions? Don't think you can figure it out by yourself. It's gonna be a challenge. So learning to live by the 10 commandments means learning to die by the 10 commandments. Learning to live means learning to die. And you gotta realize that sometimes God calls people to die for things. Jesus died on the cross. That was the call of God on his life. Some of us may get incarcerated. Some of us may be martyred. Some of us may be forced out of whatever business we're in, but let us be forced out for doing what's right, not what's wrong. So this is where we have to get really, really settled before the Lord on who we are in him, Settled in our relationship, we need to be a right relationship with people. We need to be clear, minded about truth and be in the truth, feeding on the truth regularly and growing and maturing in the truth. And we need to be committed to living as a servant of God, to love God with all our heart, all our soul and all our strength, all our mind. If you're going to love God, you will obey God. You will do what He says to do even if it costs you. So maybe we all have grace to live that way, to step up. Now there's an exercise here that we'll do in uh, the business roundtable, and we'll also come back and revisit some of this in the roundtable as well. And let me just summarize what we've been through over these four lessons. We've talked about the purpose of management. Purpose of management strategically is think big. Think about the creation mandate, the meta-narrative, and how we fit into that. Whatever you do should be an exercise of fulfilling the creation mandate in the context of meta-narrative. Whether you see it or understand it or not, that's what you should be going for. The nature of management is to shepherd the flock of God that God has assigned to you as a manager. You don't get to pick them. They don't get to pick you. God assigns both and we need to be humble, submitted, and teachable under him to serve his purpose in the sheep we've been assigned to. The responsibility of management is tactically to align, discern, and align with the will of God in whatever business activities you're doing. You don't just go make up stuff. You don't go try to maximize profit. You go try to discern what you're called to do, and you go do it well for his glory, and whatever he provides, you are grateful. But the big agenda is to do it, his will, his ways, and his time in his glory. And finally, the Ten Commandments of Business is about being a student of Scripture, being regulated by the word, letting the word of God guide and direct you in how you function, how you lead and manage, how you serve the purpose of God in and through your work activities. So may the Lord give us all grace to do this well and faithfully for his glory.